Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting August 2nd, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll reveal the secret of how to get really good at anything with Phil Ross, the author of The Expert Mind, in the August issue of Scientific American. And we'll also hear how you can bicycle to Pluto from Sheldon Schaefer, the curator of the solar system. All will be explained. Plus, we'll test you on some recent science in the news. First up, Phil Ross. He was a contributing editor at Scientific American when he wrote The Expert Mind and has just become the web editor for the publication IEEE Spectrum. I called him at his office in New York City. Hi, Phil. How are you? Hi, how are you? Good. So you have the cover story in the August issue of Scientific American, The the Expert Mind. And uh, so let me ask you this. How do I get to Carnegie Hall? Well, practice, practice, practice is the standard answer. And a lot of people have thought it was not quite true. They thought talent played a role. And they may be right. It's hard to disprove that that uh, hypothesis. But the current belief, it seems, is among people who study expertise, the experts on expertise, is that there's no good reason why any one of us could not become a recognized expert. Practice really does make perfect rather than an innate kind of talent for a field, but it has to be the right kind of practice, right? Yes. Imagine um, a good analogy for anyone is to take the one thing that we are truly expert in, which is uh, something to do with language that is not natural, reading. Everyone speaks a language, and you can't call that expertise because there's an argument that we are programmed to learn a language. But there's nothing out there programming us to learn how to read and write. It's very artificial. It takes many years to learn. To get to the level of a normal, educated adult reader, I don't think can be done in less than 10 years. And uh, imagine how much better you would have gotten if you'd stayed with the C-Spot Run books that you were first exposed to in kindergarten or the first grade. You mean how much better you would not have gotten? Yes, you'd have stayed the same. Um, exactly like the poor golfer who just learns enough to get to the point where he can keep up with other bad golfers and not embarrass himself and then stops improving. Um, imagine that all you ever wanted to do with reading was continue to read comic books. You'd never get better than you needed to to read comic books. The article refers to it as effortful study rather than just doing the activity. Yes, effortful study um, is a, uh, a phrase coined by Anders Ericsson, a big expert in this field off in Florida. And he means by it work that's involved, that involves constant self-grading. So, for example, if you were a violinist and you had problems with a particular passage, you wouldn't just bleep over it and say, oh, well, people won't notice it or I'll just do better elsewhere. You work on that one and you try to get better. Maybe you don't. After all, it's difficult for you, so you try a different tactic. You try a different method. You try to approach it from a different way. And you, you, you work at it and work at it. And you do this sort of thing until you can handle the passage in question. A day later, you make sure you can still handle it. A week later, you make sure you can still handle it. Then you figure you've got it down pet and you hit the next weakness in your play. And you do this um, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for 10 years, and pretty soon we're talking that a good violinist. Now, one might think that, for, let's say for the violinist, a concert would be a key uh, growth event, or for an athlete, the competition would be the key thing. But the article points out that the value, and for chess as well, the competition, the article points out that the value of actual competition in enhancing expertise is really only to illuminate those areas that require more work. Yes. Um, if you look at chess players who play 
in serious competition against recognized opponents all the time and compare them to others who play much less frequently, though not, not, not at all, yet fill up the extra time with intensive study, the second group does better. The practice itself is the key matter. The, um, it, it works at all levels, all the way up to the world champion. And when you find examples of so-called naturals, you know them in sports, it's also known in chess, the examples get more ex- exotic, more convincing, and more amazing the further back in time you go and the worse your records are. So, for example, Capablanca, uh, he's the great Cuban chess grandmaster who became world champion in 1921. He was a, considered to be a great natural player. He used to boast that he never read a chess book. In his day, the chess books, for the most part, weren't very good. He studied chess incessantly, and he made a great effort to seem like he wasn't making an effort. That's, that's my opinion. So it's, it's motivation that's more important than any kind of innate ability. Motivation, effort in the right way, doing the right things. Can you talk just a, a little bit about, in the article, the, there's a discussion of brain scans of masters versus novices. Yes. Masters are more likely to rely on long-term memory, accessing patterns that they laid down and mastered long ago in the course of their play. The the thing that I remember being struck by was that the novices and the masters were contemplating the same number of choices, mm-hmm. but the masters were contemplating a better variety of choices, a yes. stronger variety. The, the correlation goes as follows. Very weak players do not look at many, many op- op- options, in part because it's so effortful for them just to generate legal moves and to project ahead one move ahead, let us say. But as the players get better, the number of positions that they consider in the course of choosing a move goes up. And somewhere around the expert level, which is just below master, it seems to reach a plateau. From that point onward, though the gap in performance, the gap in ability may increase immensely, the number of positions looked at stays pretty much the same. Maybe it goes up very slightly. The argument for this is that uh, after a certain point, after people become pretty good at chess, uh, the differences come not from analysis, but from knowledge. So what what can general education take away from what we've learned from analyzing how chess players work? Well, um, if you can, you can look at a number of things, not just chess. You can say, what about normal music classes versus serious music classes? And you could say, what about normal mathematics from K through 12 versus the mathematics of those children who take an actual interest, who join math club? Even if you take into account that there's far more hours spent by the involved kids than in the bored ones, you cannot begin to account for the gap in performance. You have to, and and that's why it's tempting to put it all on the shoulders of talent. Uh, Talent, in the form of general intelligence, has to play a role in many things in life. I'm not denying that. No one really does. But in mastering an established body of knowledge where we've seen that people of different levels of intelligence can do it, it must have to do with effortful practice. And having people sit in a class where they're supposed to learn chorus for an hour a day for 40 weeks a year, or two hours a week, 40 weeks a year for 10 years, is far, far less productive than having them struggle with a violin or some other instrument for the same number of hours in a given month. I think that this is intuitively obvious. You don't get better in the first case. You just get older. You just get older and, yeah. and stay the same. And a lot of what goes on in school involves 
aging the children, seasoning them, waiting till they're ripe on the vine so that you can then pour them into a job somewhere, as opposed to teaching them something. This is also, by the way, true in chess. I happen to know that in New York City there are a number of schools, actually schools for very intelligent children, um, selective schools, where chess is a required subject, at least for several grades. And these schools do not produce anything like what you'd expect the number of expert players. One or two typically per school. Whereas, given the effort and given the coaching, it's typically a master coach, you'd expect far more. Why? It's because it's taken just like another subject, one that's not particularly interesting to most of the kids. Mm-hmm. It's the one, so motivation is everything. Stimulating it is not a trivial question. If you made it into an absolutely important rite of passage, in our society, the two that come to mind are reading and writing on the one hand and driving a car on the other. You can count on 99% achievement. People who don't have organic brain troubles will learn to read, write, and drive a car. Yet reading, writing, and driving a car are not particularly easy, and playing chess on a fairly good level, fairly good, is not particularly hard. Yet it's rare. The motivation isn't there. It's possible to achieve great things just by developing interest in them. Phil, thanks very much. Very interesting. Uh, The expert mind in the August Scientific American. Thank you. So now you know the secret of getting really good at anything, just 10 years of hard work. By the way, Phil Ross's article is available free at our website, www.siam.com, and check out IEEE Spectrum online, spectrum.ieee.org, I-E-E-E.org. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the shuttlecocks used in badminton aren't as good these days because avian flu has left good goose feathers in short supply. Story two, icy cold watermelon is delicious, but room temperature watermelon is more nutritious. Story three, a vaccine appears to fight the battle of the bulge, in rats anyway. And story four, intelligence tests show that monkeys are at least as smart as our ape cousins, with the tiny marmoset outsmarting even orangutans. We'll be back with the answer, but first... I was reading Bicycling Magazine, and I saw a short item about something taking place the weekend of August 12th and 13th called the Interplanetary Bicycle Ride. Naturally, I was intrigued, so I got in touch with Sheldon Schaefer. One of his titles is actually Curator of the Solar System. He's also the Vice President of Education and the Director of the Planetarium at the Lakeview Museum of Arts and Sciences in Peoria, Illinois. I called him at his home in Peoria. Mr. Schaefer, thanks for being with us today. I'm excited to be here. Tell me about the Interplanetary Bicycle Ride. Well, the Interplanetary Bicycle Ride is a a one-and-a-half-day event which takes cyclists, uh, bicyclists, on a a tour of Peoria's community solar system. And we, we often bill it as the world's longest and fastest bicycle ride using the scale factors 
of the right, of course. This is no model of the solar system like people may be used to that cover a, a desk or a room even. No, not at all. This model, uh, we extend out in different directions, 16 miles to the southeast and 22 miles to the northeast and 40 miles to the northwest to arrange the planets in the appropriate distances, not positionally accurate for any moment in time, but the right distances from the sun relative to our model sun here at Lakeview Museum. And the relative correct sizes of the bodies, correct? Exactly. We have uh, distance and size on the same scale, and that's what differentiates our model from uh, many of the models you may have encountered in your life. Right. I mean, for example, the usual model that the, the sun is the size of, say, a basketball, and the earth is the size of maybe an apple or a golf ball, and it's a foot or two away. So in your model, how big is the sun, how big is the earth, and how far is it away? The sun is a 36-foot sphere, uh, represented by our planetarium dome and painted on the outside of our building. The earth is four inches in diameter an accurately custom-painted Earth globe, and it's located in a gas station about three-quarters of a mile from the museum. And how far away is Pluto? Pluto, as the crow flies, is about 40 miles away. So we're, we're doing this bike ride, and, and we leave the uh, the sun, and the idea is to, to really get a sense of the scale of our solar system in a way that no other models that I've ever seen can can do. Exactly. And in fact, this model wasn't intentionally sized for bicycle, but it, it works out extremely well with bicycles. Uh, one of the design criteria I had was that uh, it had to fit in Illinois, and Pluto had to be big enough to see. And how big is Pluto in your model? It's about a sphere of three quarters of an inch in diameter. Actually, that's our second Pluto. The first Pluto was ripped off. And so, somebody meantime, stole Pluto? Somebody stole Pluto, and uh, actually the proprietor of the furniture store where it was located inserted a gumball in its place and didn't even tell me until some of my students from Bradley University were out there on a class assignment, and they said, you know, Pluto looks oddly like a gumball. I understand you've made a calculation as to the speed of light in your model. Actually, this is one of the real serendipitous things. Uh, I teach part-time at Bradley University, and the chairman of the department, after um, um, a dinner calculation on the back of a nap napkin, literally, uh, remarked to me, you know, on your model, the speed of light is about seven miles per hour. Which means that your average bicyclist can easily do twice the speed of light on this ride. Exactly. Uh, and over the distance, uh, most people... Uh, well, the serious cyclists, the century riders, will certainly do uh, twice the speed of light, and, and even the casual rider will exceed the speed of light, and um, nobody will drop below the speed of light, I don't think. So you should finish the ride before you began it. Exactly. There, there have to be relativistic implications for going many times faster or several times faster than the speed of light. Right, within your model, anyway. And how many people show up for the ride every year? It's it's ranged always between 150 and 250, depending on the year and the weather. And um, this year, I think we might guarantee hot weather. Yeah, it looks that way. Do uh, do people have to pre-register, or can they just show up? Pre-registration is encouraged, but uh, we expect half of the ride to just show up. The Interplanetary Bicycle Ride. 
and that's going to be a week from this coming Saturday, August 12th, and Sunday, August 13th. Right. Uh, Saturday, you can start at Saturn, and you can ride back to the orbit of Jupiter or out to the planets Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto, and back. Or we have a bus to Pluto, so then you can take the bus to Pluto and, and ride back from Pluto. Okay, the sag wagon to Pluto for anybody who doesn't want to bike the whole thing. Terrific. Mr. Schaefer, thanks very much. Good luck with the ride. Thank you so much. For more on the ride, just Google Interplanetary Bicycle Ride or go to the site of the Lakeview Museum, www.lakeview-museum.org. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, avian flu is making for sickly shuttlecocks. Story two, warm watermelon is more nutritious than the cold kind. Story three, an experimental vaccine seems to fight obesity in rats. And story four, marmosets are smarter than chimps and orangutans. Time's up. Story one is true. The northern Chinese geese that ordinarily provide top-quality feathers for shuttlecocks have been slaughtered by the millions to try to stop the spread of avian flu. The Associated Press reports that lesser-quality feathers are being used for shuttlecocks and that top-of-the-line shuttlecocks could triple in price if the trend continues. Story two is true. Reuters reports that chilling watermelon appears to cut down its lycopene and beta-carotene. That's according to Agriculture Department research. Watermelons keep making the compounds after being picked, but that process can get stopped cold. But I'm still going for the refrigerated stuff because when it's 100 degrees, I'm sorry, my decision-making gets a bit intemperate. Story three is true. Scientists at the Scripps Research Institute have developed a vaccine that targets a hormone that makes us and rats think we're hungry. Vaccinated rats gained less weight than other rats that ate the same amount. You can read more in David Biello's article on our website, www.siam.com. All of which means that the story about monkeys beating out apes in intelligence tests is, of course, totally bogus. Because research reported yesterday from the Duke University Medical Center showed, as might be expected, that orangutans and chimps consistently outsmart monkeys and lemurs in a wide range of tests. The study was published in the journal Evolutionary Psychology. Study co-author Carl von Scheich said, The fact that great apes performed better than other primates in these laboratory tests is reassuring. After all, in absolute terms, their brains are the largest, and they show the most sophisticated behavior under natural conditions. To hear Carl von Scheich talk generally about his work, check out the podcasts from April 5th and April 12th, available at siam.com slash podcast, and his Scientific American article, Why Are Some Animals So Smart, is available free on our website. Just go to siam.com and navigate to the April 2006 issue. We'll be right back. Tired of searching the internet in a vain attempt to answer your science question? Well, now you can ask a scientist. Send your science questions to podcast at siam.com. And if we pick your science question... Johnny, tell them what they've won! An answer to your science question from an actual scientist. Plus, we'll have you ask the question yourself on the podcast. So, send your science questions to podcast at siam.com today. Ask a Scientist is not affiliated with Ask a Doctor, Ask a Lawyer, Ask a Librarian, Ask an Accountant, Ask an Astronaut, or Ask a Sommelier. All rights reserved. Your mileage may vary. Not available in Kansas and parts of Ohio. Oh, how I wish I was in Peoria. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address, podcast at siam.com. And remember, science news is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Oh, how I wish.
I was in Peoria, Peoria, Luna.